You know about scary pockets? One, two, you know what to do. If you know what it is, then you know what it is. Maybe you discovered one of the hundreds of videos they've made since 2017. Those live, in-studio, funky, angular, raw, joyful, sometimes absurd reworkings of your favorite songs. Three little birds sat on my window And they told me I don't need to worry Summer came like cinnamon, so sweet Little girls double dutch on the concrete Maybe a friend sent you one or shared it on social media. Maybe the almighty algorithm served it up to you somewhere in between other videos by Jacob Collier, Wolfpack, Postmodern Jukebox, Pomplemousse, John Schofield, and Snarky Puppy. Or maybe you're just up on the trends. Maybe you discover new music on YouTube. You follow what the kids are doing out in L.A. Or maybe none of what I'm saying makes any sense to you and it sounds like a bunch of gibberish. Whatever the case may be, welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Scary Pockets are a dynamic funk band that was started by keyboard player Jack Conti and guitarist Ryan Lerman in L.A. and who are joined by a continuously rotating lineup of quality musicians and singers. That's part of their secret. Every song that they record features a slightly different group of people, so it always seems fresh and unexpected. Just as importantly, they primarily release their work on YouTube. It is possible to stream the songs as audio only or to buy the music on vinyl. But for the most part, Scary Pockets is a visual project that relies as much on the immediacy and excitement of the live in-studio performances as the music itself to engage with the audience. That's not to say that they're not incredible musicians. Scary Pockets is made up of an ever-growing list of crack players who are given to the groove and fixated on the funk. And at the center of it, Jack Conti and particularly Ryan Lerman remain constant. See, Jack Conti is also the founder and CEO of Patreon, a platform that allows creators to engage with and find financial support directly from their fans. Even this podcast is on Patreon. So in recent years, Conti comes and goes a bit, but Ryan Lerman, he's always there. And because every Scary Pockets video features a slightly different collection of characters, the band serves as a kind of incubator for discovering new talent. It's difficult to choose just one or two examples to demonstrate what they do because they release a new video each week and they have for nearly half a decade. So I'll show you the first video that they ever did. This is the first one I can find anyway. It's the cover of Ed Sheeran's Shape of You from back in 2017. The club isn't the best place to find a lover, so the bar is where I go. Me and my friends at the table doing shots, drinking fast and then we talk slow. Come over and start up a conversation with just me And trust me, I'll give it a chance Take my hand, stop up in the man on the jukebox And then we start to dance I'm singing like, boy, you know I want your love Your love is handmade for somebody like me Come and now follow my lead Come and now follow my lead I'm singing, boy, you know I want your love Your love was handmade for somebody like me Since 2019, Scary Pockets has released a second video each week also with a similar philosophy but with a more acoustic approach, and they call that series the Stories Videos. The first song that Stories released was a brilliant rendering of the Bob Dylan song Don't Think Twice, sung by the great Monica Martin, who was also a former guest of this podcast. Well, it ain't no use sitting on the white Oh, it ain't 
One of my favorite subplots in the Scary Pockets narrative is the series of recordings they've done with the great keyboard master Larry Goldings, which they call Scary Goldings, but which I mistakenly refer to as Larry Pockets later in this episode. And so you'll know that it's Scary Goldings and not Larry Pockets, but you'll also see how I could make such a mistake. They even made a record last year featuring a kind of supergroup of Larry Goldings, guitarist John Schofield, bass phenomenon Mono Neon, and frenetic drum monster Lewis Cole. Goldings and Cole have both been featured on previous episodes of this podcast as well. As a matter of fact, many of the Scary Pockets collaborators have shown up here over the years, including Louis Cato, Corey Henry, Caleb Hawley, Lawrence, Jacob Collier, Eric Krasno, Adam Levy, Joey Dosick, Theo Katzman, and Jack Stratton of Wolfpack. The Wolfpack connection runs deep with these guys. Ryan Lerman says that without Wolfpack, another incredibly funky band that rose to fame on YouTube, Scary Pockets, would not exist. But listen, you don't have to know about any of these artists. You don't have to know who they are to enjoy this conversation. What you do need to know is that these videos attract hundreds of thousands of views, sometimes millions of views, and it's serious business. So it may come as no surprise that Jack Conti and Ryan Lerman think and talk as much like tech entrepreneurs as they do like musicians. They met as high school students in Marin County, California, and were formed in the shadows of Silicon Valley. They're both, in the words of Ryan Lerman, systems-level thinkers who are informed by towards-and-away values. If you're wondering what that is, that is some tech talk. I spoke to Ryan Lerman for today's episode, and I was amazed to discover that despite being an incredibly creative and prolific musician, what he really wanted was to be a lawyer. I've met plenty of lawyers who wanted to be guitar players, but I must admit I didn't know it could go the other way, too. In any case, fortunately for us, Ryan chose the musical path and agreed to share his story with me here today. You should also know that Ryan is a brilliant singer-songwriter as well, something that I think gets overlooked. And in fact, when it's all said and done, maybe Ryan's songs will be his greatest contribution. So what happens when a systems-level thinker is also a deeply funky guitar player and a soulful songwriter too? Stick around to find out. Third-Story.com is the place for all your third story needs. Patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place to go to support both me and Jack Conti at the same time. And starting today, The Third Story is a production of listener-supported WBGO Studios. So visit wbgo.org studios to learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts. Here's me and Ryan Lerman talking it down. I don't want to waste too much time on sound checking with you because time is precious, but I suppose starting a conversation, Ryan, with you about sound checking is kind of apropos because you seem to be a guy who keeps showing up in all these spaces, playing with different people under different conditions. And I'm so curious about like what the mechanics of the Scary Pockets sessions are like, you know? Mm-hmm. I guess before we get there, though, let me just say, acknowledge what a what a treat it is to get to talk to you. And it has happened to me on a handful of occasions where I'm talking to people who are so familiar visually because, you know, you're so much of your career is taking place on YouTube and in these videos that you're like you're like a friend to so many of us because we see you so regularly Aww. in these videos. So, yeah, I guess the first thing is like, can you talk a little bit about how your 
your life is set up. You know, these videos drop so regularly that it gives you the impression that you're you're making a new video every day. But I get the sense that you're a little more strategic about the way they get made. Slightly. <laughs> Although sometimes it feels like I'm making a new video every day. Well, my life is set up. Basically, we Pockets is a lot of batch recording. So the basic premise is we get together once a month, every month. We record four songs with a band and rotating singers and then the songs come out weekly although not not in order so we mix up between studio so it kind of has the appearance of new band new singer each week but um but that's that's what's happening behind the scenes is once a month we do a session and who's putting the bands together the singers deciding what the combinations are going to be deciding repertoire arranging tunes those yeah mostly uh i put the bands together i choose the singers the song choice comes as a result of usually i'll approach the singer and say we try to do songs that everybody knows that aren't already funky so we can make them as different as possible from the original and then i'll usually ask them like what do you what do you want to do uh, and they'll give me a list of five songs, whatever. And then ideally we hit on one that we're both really excited about. And then we choose a backup in case uh, we get done quickly uh, with, with that one. Cause we have about 90 minutes per song. So sometimes we get it really quick and then we were able to get two songs. That's generally how it happens. Why do you have 90 minutes per song? The way that our days are structured, um, we basically start at I think nine or ten, um, and then we do three hours of recording, ninety minutes per singer, and then lunch for an hour, and then another three hours of recording, and then we're done. I mean, it's like some wrecking crew kind of thing. It sounds like a, a very organized, regimented approach. Jack and I, um, Jack Conti, who we started Scary Pockets with. Yep, my my co-founder in Scary Pockets and CEO of Patreon. We tend to be very like systems level thinkers. You know what I mean? Which is sort of like been the fun of Pockets is it's a focus on just like the process instead of the outcome. Hmm. And yeah, so it's just been this thing, this sort of machine that we've been tinkering with for the last five years or so. So when you talk about the, the process rather than the outcome, how do you think that affects what happens musically or creatively? I think it affects the music because we have so many at-bats that we're not too concerned with which one is going to be a home run. We, we realized very early on that the thing that you think is going to be a hit is rarely the hit. Um, and so what that does is you just make a lot of stuff. And, and I think... I think a lot of art is like this, where Jack and I sort of talk about the many pots theory. Have you heard of this? No, tell me. I'll, I'll probably mess up this anecdote, but there was like a, a, a third grade class or something, an art class, and they were making pottery, and they they told half the class to, for a month, we're going to make the best pots that, that we can make, um, and then... Just make the best pot you can make. And then the other half of the class, they said, just make as many pots over this the course of this month as you can make. At the end of the month, of course, the, the half of the class that just 
focused on quantity instead of quality, their pots were were far superior to the the than, than the the class that was just focused on making the one best pot. And so I I sort of have spent I spent probably half my career in in the first half of the class and then the other half of my career in the second half of the class and um there there are there, there are definitely lessons to be gained from both but pockets is very much a subscriber of the um the many pots theory where it, you you get better by just making the most things as opposed to trying to make a, a few great things it's interesting that, and I totally agree with you, your career seems to be evenly split on both sides of that. I mean, because while Scary Pockets is like this, this engine that keeps, you know, keeps generating it's relentless, relentless, <laughs> rel and I, and I, in my own small way, relate to it by just having to do a constant podcast. And I know how mm -hmm. abusive it can be. You know, you wake oh, up, yeah. you're running late every time you get out of bed. Right. And on the other hand, you have this, you know, you have multiple careers, but one of them is as a singer songwriter. And I mean, I, I, I don't mean to s suggest that you're precious about it, but you're you're definitely careful and deliberate about your solo career in a way it seems and maybe because you don't have as much time because you're doing the other stuff, too. But it seems like maybe that's the part of your career where you are a little more oh, deliberate about it. Yeah. Oh, she's got this way about it. I don't think I can live without her now I didn't always feel this way But now I don't know what to say I tried to test the water and fell in And now I guess I'm learning how to swim The term OCD gets thrown around a lot, but uh, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty um, like I, I do feel like a, a superpower of mine is the ability to to um, to just work on something uh, and listen to it a gajillion times mm -hmm. and you know get wrapped up in every single detail and not quit until it's perfect. Mm -hmm. I I enjoy doing that. It, it they're they're definitely. Uh, pluses to to both ways of working and and uh yeah i've gone pretty deep down both rabbit holes do you think about what it might be like to take a the values of pockets and apply it to a ryan lerman record yeah you know it's it's difficult because it is way harder to be less precious when it's your own thing and your own feelings yeah you know what i mean there's this element of um my songs the sort of like self therapy mm -hmm. where it's kind of like mining your own subconscious mm -hmm. and trying to excavate parts of yourself that you didn't know were were there and i don't know if that i, I mean i'm it, it's so it's harder to be it's harder to take the many pots theory with your own solo work for yourself yeah. or at least that's been my experience i think if i had a producer who could force that upon me um then I would be greatly benefited <laughs> by it. But um, I haven't figured out a way to do that yet. There probably is, and it, it would probably be smart for me to explore it. I mean, first of all, I know what you're talking about in your songwriting. I, I find your songs to be so sensitive and, and also oddly so in touch with the human experience, you know, and it's that classic thing of reach inside yourself and you'll speak more deeply on a you know universal level. Mm -hmm. uh, 
trying to tell you how to live life Nobody asked if I was alright I'm not, I'm dying to be Someone who can work to feed their family And not at the mercy of frivolity Of changing markets So if you feel left out I can see why once you're looking into your own psyche that it, it, you know, it becomes very vulnerable and, you know, as opposed to the freedom that you seem to have when you take somebody else's song and completely mangle it and mash it up with some two songs that, you know, lyrically might not even make any sense together or whatever, but it's, it's all valid It all. Anything goes, you know, when Mm -hmm. you're playing covers. Totally. Yeah. You're able to be far less precious about messing up somebody else's work than your own. Have you learned anything about songwriting or have any secrets about songs revealed themselves to you after mining so many other people's songs? That's a great question. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) If knowing a, a lot of songs or having played a lot of songs made you a good songwriter, then Mm -hmm. hotel lobbies would just be full of Bob Dylan's and Paul Simons, and they're not. I think what what makes you a, a great songwriter is writing a lot of songs. And so I, I don't think that um, the process of having reworked all of these songs over the last five years, or, and we've probably done three to 400 songs at this point, I don't feel a better songwriter at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, no, and I think, I mean, there's so many examples. I love the hotel lobby example. I think the other one that comes up for me is like classical musicians. You know, I've always been amazed Mm -hmm. by how little it seems like concern so many classical musicians have for what's happening compositionally. They they just need to execute this thing in front of them, you know? Totally. Yeah, it might influence you subconsciously in terms of what gets into your your brainstem. Yeah. As far as like uh, when you're writing options that that just come out that you didn't know were in there but on a conscious level yeah i don't i don't know that it has made me better you know i i did a panel discussion years ago and dean parks was on the panel talking about all the sessions he played and one of the things that he said was that he did he believes that there is no such thing as the right part you know that if you're in a session and a song is put in front of you and you find a part if 
for whatever reason it's not working, the singer doesn't like it, the producer doesn't like it, the rhythm section, some, then you find another part. He said there's an infinite number of right parts for these songs, you know? I came to the realization there's a, probably a hundred good parts for this little thing. And it's just a matter of finding one that you like and the producer likes. No one has given up their ideals in order to come up with a part that everybody agrees on. You, you can have your something that you're completely proud of and completely satisfy the opposite kind of idea that you had. That's so cool. Yeah, I love that idea. I think about that when I see you because you keep showing up with these tunes and you always find the part. You know, you always have to find the sound and find the part and just get it done. How do you, yeah. what, what, how do you approach it? Yeah, Dean Parks, what a master. Um, I think that the time limit is just a, such an important factor. And so really, we're just trying to move as quickly as possible and come up with something that works. Mm -hmm. One limitation is that. The other one is this sort of like, I think this this funk label has had an effect on me, which I'm not sure is good or bad. But I, before Scary Pockets, I never considered myself, I didn't listen to like a lot of, mm -hmm. I, I like the meters, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But I was like, you know, Elliot Smith song guy, and I went to guitar school. I never... You know, I'm not Corey Wong. I didn't really fancy myself like a funk guitar player. And so I think the parts and the sort of like general approach to guitar playing that came about in these Scary Pockets videos is kind of a result of playing as little as possible and just leaving space for the bass player and the singer. I mean, I feel like Pockets is, is very like it's a bass player's playground because Jack and I don't do a lot. So there's just like all this room available for whatever the singer wants to do, whenever the bass player wants to do. So Jack and I just try to play like as little as possible so so that there's like enough harmony, but it's simple and that things feel good. Yeah. And that sort of like frees you up. There, the other element that that I think is important is the fact that they're all videos, so we're all performing. Mm -hmm. So I think that probably informs the parts as well, because what makes the video we're like aware that what makes the videos good is if we're actually having fun and we actually look like we're having fun. If that wasn't there, uh, we might play more complicated stuff, perhaps, because we wouldn't have to be thinking about how do I look. How do I look? <laughs> can I play this um, sitting cross-legged on the floor? Can I play this on a couch? Can I play this in totally, one take? Totally. So I, I think I think um, those three things probably inform uh, the the general approach to like finding a part is like simple. Uh, Jack and I try to never play at the same time, so <laughs> that kind of informs uh, the parts because basically, if one of us hears something first, the other one tries to fit into the spaces mm -hmm. of that part interlock uh yep yep we try to lock into each other um which forces us to listen and so all of those things i think probably result in basically me taking a note and jack taking a note and <laughs> playing them in hocket fashion and even when jack's not in the videos it seems like maybe that's still driving you whoever is going to play keys or whatever that's just the theory behind it the philosophy behind it exactly that's that's sort of how I'll get people to imitate what Jack would do mm -hmm. is just tell them, 
pretend like you don't know how to play the piano and uh, play play very simply and not while I'm playing. Right. <laughs> you know, you talk about it as a bass player's medium in a lot of ways. I didn't know this until I did a little research into you that you also have spent a lot of time playing bass. Yeah, I have. I, I toured with Ben Folds um, playing bass for him. I mean, technically, I think I'm still his bass player. It's been, let's see, probably 12 years since I started playing with him, and he just hasn't toured with the trio in, in, in a long time. Were you a Ben Folds guy? Were you a Ben Folds 5 guy? Were you into it? I was a, I mean, I, I definitely had the CD. Yeah. Whatever and ever, amen. Do you not hear me anymore? No, it's not your thing to care. No, it's cool to be so bored. Sucks me in when you're It sucks me in, it sucks, it works. I guess it's cool to be alone. Yeah. But I wasn't, uh, and I knew I knew some of the hits, but I had friends who were diehard fans, and I was not a diehard fan until the gig came about. And then I learned all the songs and became a diehard fan. Yeah. And, and uh, I just, I think he doesn't, I, I think he's very underrated. There's a, I have, especially in the sort of muso crowd, I think there's a lot of people that would and should love his music that just haven't uh, gotten inducted somehow or for some reason. I think there's there's a barrier to entry for a lot of people. Well, that, you know, I think that that may speak to a larger question about the relationship with musos. I look at a lot of what's going on in your world for, you know, I'm in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. and we have a lot of shared friends and, and acquaintances and, and colleagues and companions. But I, I sometimes I look at what's happening in L.A. with envy because it seems completely unburdened by a lot of the questions that sometimes come up. Like, is this hip? Will the musicians dig this? Is this jazz? Is this, you know, I mean, is this a thing that is going to be evaluated and respected by, I don't know, the the jazz police, the muso police, you know, and you guys seem to just go, we're just going to uh, have some fun and make some music. And it's always on a super high level. Yeah, we well. Pockets is decidedly anti-jazz. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> we have like towards and away values. Yeah. You know, just to make things easy. And and the towards is, you know, simple, funky, fun yeah. meters. And the away is extensions. Yes. Steely Dan, complicated. Mm -hmm. It's just like a, 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 a flavor that we... I, I don't know. It's just for whatever reason, Jack and I just don't swing in that way for four pockets. I love jazz in a different context. I think that you're trying to have it both ways because the Larry Pockets thing by bringing Larry Goldings in and then the next thing you know, you're there you are, Ryan Lerman, there you are with Larry Goldings and John Schofield. <laughs> That's true. Come on. Are you going to tell me you're anti-jazz when you make a, make a record like that? I am not anti-jazz, but Pockets... Pockets tends to be, but Scary Goldings, Scary Goldings is a, is, is a whole different beast.
I guess when I say jazz, basically, it is a is a type of jazz because yeah. anything that that evokes that the it's sort of like minor nine jazz. You know what I mean? Anything that evokes a sort of like loungy or yeah, anything smooth. Yeah, you know what I mean. We just try to stay away from and go towards just like more angular, mm-hmm. uh, like triadic harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean Larry, Larry and and Sko are are two of my favorite musicians of all time, and uh, and, and yeah, I guess I guess what we do together could could very well be labeled as jazz. But I pulled you away from talking about Ben Folds, which is really where we were going, where you said you think he's he's underrated and you became his bass player. How did you become his bass player? And what, I don't know, what did you learn from working with Ben? What, I know he worked on your records and stuff too. Like, what, what is that relationship like? It's great. It's It's been one of the most rewarding experiences in my life. I mean, uh, I met him because... He and Jack Conti uh, spoke at a, on a panel together. They ended up recording a song together, uh, and Ben's bass player had just left, and he was looking for a new one. He asked Jack, and Jack hardly played bass uh, and, and was doing Pomplamoose and busy with his own thing. So Jack said, my friend Ryan, he tours. Um, you should ask him. And so Ben... Uh, ben asked me to play bass. I had played, I actually had played bass. Uh, I mean, I went to school for guitar, but um, the band that I toured with before Ben was this band called A Fine Frenzy. Mm-hmm. And she didn't like, she, she, was, she was auditioning bass players and guitar players, didn't like any of the bass players. So me and my friend Omar Velasco, who mm-hmm. are both guitar players, she asked us if we would just like uh, trade off playing bass. Mm. So we we said, okay. And I mean, so I learned the songs on bass, never practiced bass, didn't own a bass <laughs> and did that for a year and a half where Omar and I would just, okay, now you take it. I'll play guitar. And then the, the, the Ben thing came about, he asked me to just play bass and, and, uh, I, I just lied and said, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. play bass. Yeah. Sure. I'll. And, um, he said, great. I don't, I don't really audition people. So you got the gig and the tour starts in, you know, four months and uh, we'll do a couple of days of rehearsal at my studio in Nashville and then we'll go. And um, so I went and at that point I, I had to buy a bass mm-hmm. and uh, What'd you buy? I, I, I bought a, uh, what did I buy? I think I bought a, a road-worn jazz bass hmm. from, I had like a contact at Fender or something. And I got like a seven hundred dollar road worn jazz bass. Actually, funny story. I was teching at the right after I got this this gig. I loved uh, Bird and the Bee, mm-hmm. and my friend was doing front of house for them at the Hollywood Bowl, and said I could get you in if you if you tech. Do you want to come be a tech? And so I did. And Justin Meldel Johnson was playing bass. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a perfect shame. Creep under my door and do it again. Again, 
and um i just took pictures he he was so friggin' cool and sounded so good i just took pictures of his whole rig he had like a pedal board and a 112 uh and a 410 cab and an ag 500 head and i took pictures of everything and literally copied it to a t and um yeah that was sort of my the the start of my the real start of my bass journey i basically transcribed every note mm-hmm. on every ben folds <laughs> recording every every bass note that mm-hmm. was played mm-hmm. so i could play along to every folds song and play the bass line exactly uh because i had no concept for what a, a bass player would do you know i couldn't just like learn the chords and do my thing i didn't know like what I should embellish and what I should play exactly. So I just decided, well, he it'll be harder for him to fire me if I know every single song and can play, play it exactly like the record. And is, so that was sort of where I started. That was my approach. Is that still your bass approach? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't play bass a ton. I mean, I, I did it, um, I played, I toured with a ta- the tallest man on earth, uh-huh. um, maybe five years after playing with Ben. And it was just, that's what he needed. He needed a bass player, so I played bass. It's definitely not still my approach. Now I just, now I play. I just, I can just play. Yeah. I'm also not, uh, you know, having having now played with so many insanely brilliant uh, bass players, I definitely don't feel uh, anywhere close to on the level of like a true, true, you know, bass player. Yeah. What you described, I think, speaks to something that has sort of been known for years, although maybe little discussed, which is that, you know, a bass is not a guitar with too fewer strings. It it is its own animal. And I think often when guitar players pick up basses, they they might look at it with a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, pity or or, uh, like it's a charming little device that they can definitely get around on. But often guitar players have a hard time figuring out what to do with the bass. The, The constraints are overwhelming. Yeah, I think sometimes guitar players playing the bass is cool. Like, I think there are a lot of bass players that are like failed guitar players. Yeah. Paul McCartney being one one of the greats but, <laughs> maybe maybe the greatest <laughs> the greatest example yeah. i think when you take that mindset and apply it to bass it can work but yeah it's definitely i mean it's it's playing a different uh a different role in in you know it's a, such a foundational part of of the music that uh there's a technique adjustment and there's also a mindset adjustment of like okay what what am i trying to uh, accomplish mm-hmm. here so you also did some touring as a guitar player, though, in your biography. I, I didn't know this about you, that you had worked with Michael Buble and with John Legend, and you had these big marquee gigs. Yeah, I did that. You did do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I played with Buble for five years, uh-huh. and kind of at the same time, I, I did a, a, about a year with John Legend as his music director and string arranger and guitar player. Mm-hmm. I played with Folds from 23, we, we toured from, I was probably 23 to 26, 25 or 26, and then I put out my solo uh, record, first solo record, and I kind of, uh, yeah, it was like 20, 26, and the momentum had stalled, and I was sort of like, okay, I just put out this record, I, I toured, I'm a little kind of out of money, I don't know what to do. And uh, and then the Buble thing 
came along and I hadn't toured at that level before yeah. arenas and whatnot. And so it seemed like a fun thing to do at the time. And so, yeah, I ended up doing it for, for five years. And in the middle, I left to do uh, John Legend and then came back and ended up writing with, with Buble and, uh, it was cool. Both I, I learned a ton from from both of those gigs. I mean, between Ben Folds, Michael Bublé, and John Legend, you're dealing with three masters in their idiom, right? These are three Definitely. stylists who kind of own their genre, their lane, right? Mm-hmm. Both as a singer and then also as the producer or arranger for all of this other stuff. Did it give you a sense of like of what the potential is? It did. I mean, they're all masters, and and pretty different ways yeah but i mean being a musician is is very entrepreneurial and i learned you know there, there's a lot of just like uh you know people management and there's a lot of just sort of navigating careers that uh that i think in hindsight i sort of it was really interesting to see the way that those three those three people uh yeah, manage the people around them and put teams together and talk, spoke to an audience um, and how they put their shows together. And yeah, it was it was really cool. It was a it was a great the, the th- having the three of them to look up to was a really nice contrast. And uh, and I learned a ton from from all three of them. I'm not asking for gossip, but I mean, is there anything that you could remember about differences or similarities between the way they those organizations were run oh yes (laughs) (laughs) when i started playing with ben he picked me up i flew into nashville and he picked me up from the airport uh in his fiat Mm -hmm. with his wife at the time and took me to the Holiday Inn and checked me in, gave him his credit card and said, if you need anything, call me and I'll see you tomorrow for, mm-hmm. for rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And um, so just immediately, I was just like, this is the greatest guy. Yeah. W- what a mensch. Yeah. And when we toured together, uh, I felt, I mean, he, he was very, uh, he, he couldn't have been kinder or more generous in terms of, you know, with his time, he'd take me out to we'd go out to breakfast all the time. We'd go to like record shops on tour, and um, he'd he'd tell me what to check out. He was just it. He was very much sort of like a an older brother, sort of father figure, and I was pretty green at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's he. He's always sort of gone out of his way to to help, which was great. And and it felt it always felt like a very genuine relationship. And then with Buble and with with John, I think they were they always felt a, a bit more like a boss employee yeah. relationships. Um, but both were were very gracious, um, and I loved I loved my time with with both of them. But it was a little less, you know, like both had like with Ben on the road. It was there was five of us and yeah. I was the new guy and the kid, and with with Buble there I was walking into a situation where you know there's a whatever a, a thirteen piece band and the guys have been there forever and 
this guy, you know, he's playing arenas and there's a ton going on. John, I walked into uh, right at the start of like the all of me craziness. So kind of watched his career mm -hmm. sort of explode. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the difference, but, but all three, I mean, are total masters of their craft. And I, and I learned a ton from watching them operate the tour that I did with John. He basically, he, he stepped away from his band, the Philly guys that he'd been playing with since the beginning. And he wanted to tour with, uh, orchestras. He, we were doing performing six months of performing arts centers and he wanted to tour with orchestras in every city, a different orchestra. And so he hired, hired <clears throat> he hired me to write, to rearrange all of his songs for orchestras mm. and then come on the road with him and play guitar. Interesting. Nice. So very quickly, I realized that, uh, you know, finding and rehearsing orchestras in every city was going to be a challenge and, and might limit the arrangements and give you less control of like the, the quality of every show. Sure. And so kind of, uh, we ended up, we ended up, uh, doing just strings. Uh, it was supposed to be string quartet plus French horn. And then we ended up abandoning the French horn thing. Uh, so that was the tour. It was six months of string court, me and string quartet. Um, so I, yeah, I re I, I arranged all his songs for string quartet and then the set list would change. So it was a lot of tinkering while we were out there and arranging new songs and covers and whatnot. So yeah, yeah with Buble, I didn't, I didn't do any arrangements for him. We yeah. just, we wrote, I wrote a song with him with Larry Golding's called half of the way, which ended up being a, a Wolf song instead of a Buble song. Yeah. Used to think I was fine on my own, yeah. Had a house, but you made it a home. I'll be your light on your darkest day. Just don't love me, love me half of the way. Used to carry the weight of it on, yeah. Before I had you there to break my fall. I want to talk a little bit about the friendship with Jack Conti because my understanding is it goes all the way back to high school. Sure does. You're both from Northern California? Uh, I grew up in LA until I was like eight, and then we moved to Marin County. Mm -hmm. And I uh, met Jack my freshman year of high school, actually before my freshman year of high school. Where'd you guys um, go to high school? We went to a school called Branson mm -hmm. and Ross. And they paired up the freshmen with seniors before school actually started. So yeah, I got a, a call from Jack on our answering machine and he picked me up. We played miniature golf and he came over when he came over, picked me up. He saw I had like a pro tools rig set up in my garage and I had rec been recording and writing songs and he got very excited and, uh, and that's how we that's how we met. But then he was on his way out. So did you, all through high school? Did you keep in touch with him? Did he? Oh check yeah, in on you? that that year when I was a freshman and he was a senior, I had no other friends. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah. Jack, Jack was. Uh, I mean, he was the the leader of the acapella group. He was, you know, the lead in the plays. He was a cool kid on campus. And I was, you know, a, a very, um, 
you know, a 14 year old with bad skin and no friends. And so Jack was my hero. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, he, he, um, he, he sort of definitely paved, paved the way for who I wanted to be. You know what I mean? We, um, so I, I, we did acapella together and then he went to Stanford the next year, which was only an hour, hour and a half away. And we kind of kept hanging. I'd go to Stanford on the weekends. We had a band called Dopamine with our friend Carlos Cabrera. And um, and we'd play like Stanford Battle of the Bands. Um, and it kept kind of going like that for the rest of high school. And then when I got into college, we'd tour together. And, you know, I'd book. We used to use MySpace and I'd book the uh, half, you know, southern half of the tour. He'd book the northern half. And we'd open for each other. And then I'd play play for him and his band so that's we've we've kind of yeah we've kind of always um found a way to do stuff together it must have been so crazy like your closest friend graduates after your freshman year you've got your sophomore junior and senior years and i mean i imagine that there was a part of you that just had your one foot out the door from the second you walked in because your guy was already gone so you knew that you were just trying to get through to get out to the other side, catch up with him. Yeah, I was I was trying to make other friends, <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I I was I probably um, you know, I was probably less of a loser than I remember being. Yeah. For what it's worth, I remember not being a loser until I went to my high school reunion, and I, there uh-huh. were all these tall guys, these jockey guys with these hot in wives finance. in finance yeah. and striped <laughs> shirts, and I and I went, who are these guys? I didn't even yeah. remember these guys. I had a exactly. bunch of nebbishy you friends. Just blocked who, it out. Yeah, I didn't even pay attention to them. That's great. Yeah, I, I did. I mean, I loved high school. Yeah, I liked college more, but yeah, I I spent a lot of high school in in the music room sort mm-hmm. of just like going through theory books and trying to learn how to play jazz um and uh and yeah always feeling like i was definitely outside of the the popular crowd and um and looking looking to the future for sure did you have any contact with or awareness of the marin scene the bay area scene i mean there's so much deep music that actually came out of your backyard in a lot of ways not really. I mean, my my, I did in the sense that I had a good friend in high school whose dad was Phil Lesh, mm-hmm. the bass player for the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. So he they'd they'd take a his name was Graham Graham Lesh who's mm-hmm. who's plays with Phil now. He's a great musician, um, and Graham would take me and another friend to Red Rocks every mm-hmm. summer when the Dead would play for a week with special guests Warren Haynes and mm-hmm. Ryan Adams and people like that. So. I sort of that that I guess was a a scene, but there weren't many people in Marin that played music. I mean, my my uh, the, or that that I knew that played music. I played. I got a gig at this place called the Seafood Peddler, which mm-hmm. became Terrapin Crossroads, which I think just closed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used to play jazz there with some woman who just played piano in the corner every mm-hmm. week, mm-hmm. and I'd drive to Santa Rosa. And study with this guy Randy Vincent, who mm-hmm. also taught Julian Lodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I took a lesson or two with Julian when I was a kid. Huh. Um, he's not much older than you, is he? How much older than you? He's he? younger. He's, he's younger. a year. <laughs> he's like a year or two younger. So yeah. I remember driving out to his house, or maybe my dad drove me to his house when I was uh, like fifteen or sixteen, and he was like 
13 or 14 and he he turned me on to like you know full house by west montgomery mm-hmm. and all these records that ended up being very influential Where'd you go to college and then you went to USC or USC yeah. yeah guitar school guitar school and at that point it was clear you're going to be a guitar player this is what you want to do it was not clear I went to USC because the the high school that Jack and I went to was was this hoity-toity kind of prep school yes Ross is a little upscale it's kind of an up, it is. upscale area it is so out of out of like 80 kids in my class I think nine went to Stanford and uh, I figured, well, music, there's a lot of kids here that are smarter than me. And so music music is going to be my best shot. So I applied to USC to the music school and um, thinking when I got there, I would just change my major. <laughs> and I tried. <laughs> I, I got there and... To what? I, tr- I tried to change to change it to business, I think. And they, when I got to the, the, the office, the lady said, oh, you would have to reapply. You'd have to apply again to the business school. And that sounded like too much work. So I, I said, okay, well, I guess I'll just, I'll do music. I can get good grades playing music and then I'll go to law school. Mm-hmm. And then summer after my junior year, I got a, a gig. I, I went on tour. I did my first tour with Vanessa Carlton and mm. Joshua Radin. And it was a six-week U.S. tour, and I just had the time of my life. And that was kind of the first time I felt like, oh, these are my people. This is this is so fun. Couldn't really foresee not doing that after having done it. What do your parents do? They're lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do they feel? How did they feel? How do they feel now about your choices? Now they're very proud. Uh if, at the time, I mean, I have amazing parents. Um, they they always gave me a healthy dose of discouragement, mm. which I appreciate and am grateful for. I was pretty headstrong in terms of like, this is, you know, it, I'm willing to work as hard as I have to work in order to make this work. And I'd rather be working on, you know, I'd rather be spending 12 hours a day working on music than working at a law firm or mm-hmm. something. And, uh, and yeah, so, so they were asking me questions like, well, how are you going to feel when all your friends start making like a lot of money and, and, and you're not. And I said, I, I all feel fine. And, um, and but it, I think is that turned out to be true. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that you're not making a lot of money, Ryan, but, but only to say <laughs> like, as you've seen, you know, the, because it, it, it did happen to me in my early, I'm 45 in my early forties. I started to realize that a lot of my peers who became yeah. lawyers, there's a climb, there's a professional yeah. climb where suddenly they're all flying first class and they're, you know, they're getting all these bonuses and they're buying second houses. They're doing all this stuff. And like, I'm just out here just hitting the next gig, you know, trying to make, yeah. and you do realize that it is for a while, it kind of seems the same. And then I started yeah. to see it, what happens. It's a different life trajectory for sure. 
Yeah, I, I think comparing yourself to others is a trap that's there to be fallen into regardless of your career path. So I think that's there no matter what. And it's there like within music. It's mm -hmm. there whether you're a musician and all your friends are working at companies or whatever. So yeah, I think I think that's just sort of like an internal journey to be conquered no matter what. Um, but yeah, it's it's I, I feel I feel like I've been very lucky. I mean, I've I've definitely gone through uh, periods of struggle and periods where I felt like did I do the right thing? Did I make the right choices? Should I, you know, should I should I go to law school now? <laughs> but uh but I yeah, I feel very lucky with where I am at the moment and and uh how I've gotten here. Well, it seems like you and Jack both had this disposition and you were able to apply, you know, whether or not it's systems oriented thinking or just this kind of business sensibility to creative work and let them both be important at the same time. Make good creative work, but do it thoughtfully and intelligently. Totally. I I feel like my happy place is sort of in the middle of like business uh, thinking and artistry because I definitely get a lot of um, satisfaction out of like team building and company building and systems thinking and goal setting. <laughs> and I get a lot a lot of satisfaction out of just being in the studio and getting lost in a Pro Tools session as well. So yeah. I'm very grateful to have outlets for both. You know, Ryan, we actually met briefly, and I don't expect you to remember it, because we were introduced very quickly backstage at Madison Square Garden at the Wolf concert. Nice. And you... It's probably too busy fiddling with the settings on Jack's iPhone. Blew my mind, man. I mean, I think we said hello, and the next thing I knew, you went up on stage and did not come off until they came off, and you were probably <laughs> the hardest working person on that gig, and if anybody has seen the video, they wouldn't realize how hard you had to work because you shot it, you know? I mean, it was kind of astounding to see you do it, and I thought, remember thinking to myself, what is Ryan Lerman doing on stage right now shooting this? Uh, you know, I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> it was a bizarre experience, but one of the greatest nights of my life. That show was so fun. High stakes for you, though, man. Oh, my God, man. You have you have no idea. I was uh, the moment coming off of the stage and being just scared to hit the, the stop button on the iPhone. Where was the battery at by the end of the concert? I, I couldn't see. Yeah, I had no idea. There, there was no. I, I think when you're recording, you can't see how much battery is left. So it was just like I, there was no. Yeah, I think the backup was. I, I think Jack had paid a lot of money to a professional film crew to capture the show, but was not planning on using it. So I think that was the the backup. But yeah, the whole time it was just this sort of this one take thing, and I didn't know how much battery was left. And so I, I just gave, I didn't press stop. I just gave it to Jack after they came off the show and was in the dressing room. I just gave the thing to Jack. So I think I did it. And, uh, and he pressed the stop button. Luckily it worked. Talking to you about how you think about your career and your work and that happy place between business and creativity. I can see how you and Jack are, Jack Stratton are two of a kind in your own way. I mean, obviously Jack Stratton is a one-of-a-kind individual 
and there's no question about that. But you have a kind of shared love of, as you say, setting goals and thinking strategically and then making creative work within those decisions. Yeah, totally. I, I, um, I mean, we're different in that Jack's a genius, hmm. um, but I love him to death. And he's been a huge influence and just extremely giving and selfless and um, generous. And uh, yeah, pockets would not exist without Jack Stratton. Oh, tell me why. I guess it started with Jack Conti calling me and said, I have your next favorite band, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Mm. And um, for like a month, he was just like, dude, you're going to love this band. And he never hasn't played for you. He, he just tells he you. He wouldn't tell me what. It, he's like, I want to I want to play it for you. I want to be there when you hear it for the first time. And so I was like, all right. I didn't know what he was talking about. And then I went to breakfast with Ben Folds, who was telling me about this funk band that his daughter Gracie had turned him on to. And um, after breakfast, he said, you probably know these guys. They're like, you know, kids that played in the funk band in college mm -hmm. that we all knew. And um, we went back to his apartment and he played me a Wolf video in his living room. And I was like, I don't know these guys, but this is cool. Yeah. They're not taking themselves seriously, and they're really good. And is this still when they're in in Michigan? They're they're doing the stuff in Michigan, or were they in L.A. already? They, I think, we're in L.A. at this point. We watched a couple of videos, and I went home, and I was watching them. I was watching them more, more videos, and I noticed the guy I'm playing drums and singing on, on Christmas in L.A. looked very familiar, and I've like read the credits, Theo Katzman. And it turns out we had played a gig together three or four months prior to me hearing mm -hmm. Wolf. But he was singing and playing guitar. And yeah. It was his solo music. And we were playing like a couple of my songs, a couple of his songs. This girl, Laura Mace, mm -hmm. was singing a couple of songs as well. And um, I didn't know he played drums. I hadn't heard of Wolf. I didn't know who he was in. So I texted him and I said, are you in this band Wolf Peck? And he said, yes. And I said, what are you playing? And he said, drums. <laughs> I said, oh. And called him up, said, Ben Folds, you want to go to breakfast? Ben Folds? So um, <laughs> we ended up having having breakfast, the four of us. That's where I met Jack, because Theo brought Jack. And it was me and Theo and Jack and Ben. And we had this great breakfast. And then Theo and, and Jack and I went to this guitar shop. And uh, a couple weeks later, they ended up coming to to my grandparents' house, which is where I was living and where my studio was. And we sort of like messed around and played music. And I, I learned that uh, they knew my solo music, which I was surprised by. But Jack, being like a YouTube connoisseur, yes. I guess, had seen uh, a song that I did with, with Folds. So we were sort of like mutual admiration society and, and very fast friends. It felt like when we started hanging out, it felt like, oh, we've known each other our entire lives and we love all the same music. That's how that started. And then um and, and then I ended up, you know, as soon as I heard Wolf, I called Conti and said, I know the band that you're playing. <laughs> is, is it Wolf Heck? He said, Fuck. And uh and it was. And um when we when when Jack had the came to me with this idea for this funk band, yeah. I mean it was Wolf meets 
postmodern jukebox yes was like what if there was kind of a wolf style cover so that was very much like in the ethos already and then we had already done wolf uh recorded my song which jack retitled baby i don't know oh mm-hmm. um which was called do with you and so i had already done uh, uh this recording session with with them and where we did two or three takes they all learned the song at the session um charles is reading the lyrics off a piece of paper on the piano baby i don't know what i'm gonna do with you if i'm your little nose should i had a talk with you And it was this this sort of amazing experience of recording very quickly, all in a room, very yeah. quietly, one take video, and then it was done. It was so much fun. So I had that sort of in my back pocket of like, oh, that's a way to record that I've never experienced before. Because you and Jack and Natalie, Dawn, you were making this other, you were, it seemed like you were into this other style of video presentation, which was take as much time as you want, but show it all one take yes. at a time film it all and then stitch it together show exactly. how the sausage gets made but not necessarily one take totally that's that's very much how i kind of came up recording was everything by myself in a bedroom doing a gajillion takes filming everything and mm-hmm. then making a video of the process and what's that the there's a there's a philosophy what's it called video songs video songs jack's term uh that he coined um of just like everything you see is what you hear yeah and this is the other this is the opposite this is one camera one take it's right in front of you yep it sort of forces you forces you to do things that you wouldn't if it wasn't being filmed which is ends up being Mm -hmm. very cool just forces you to create the magic the actual thing in the room and and the the plus to recording that way is if you have a feeling while you're recording you you know it you know that it feels good, and then you've captured it. It seems like in a lot of the Pockets videos, there's no headphones, too. It's like really exactly. you're just listening in the room. No headphones, no click. For for the first probably year or more, there were no monitors. Yeah. So the singer, we had to play quiet enough so that we could just hear the singer in the room. Okay, so this is very interesting. So what does Jack th- feel about having been borrowed from in some ways for your you know thing i mean obviously you guys are still friends but that's it's both very flattering and also it's like hey man that's my shit you're taking my sound (laughs) you stole my (laughs) thing yeah jack deserves a lot more credit than he probably gets in the public uh the public awareness Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and i think he he likes it that way. He's a number one, number two guy. That's what he calls himself. He's the, the number behind. one, number two guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he um, uh, a lot a lot of people have I think borrowed and, and yeah. copied um, stuff that that Jack has done, and we've always been um, been shameless about it, and and uh, and he's you know always just been there. There there's been not not an ounce of um, resentment or yeah or 
any negative feelings whatsoever. We've always just been, you know, the the closest of friends, and and we get together all the time and talk about new ideas. And uh, and yeah, he's 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 just a generous a generous guy. So I'm very grateful for his you know his friendship. When you described him as you know when you you tell the story about how he already knew your music because he's a YouTube connoisseur connoisseur yeah Yeah. you know when i talked i talked to him years ago and talked about the experience from the outside of seeing i guess it was maybe fearless flyers was the first time where i saw suddenly there's my wolfpack friends showing up in the scary pockets room yeah And, and and it was like oh all my friends from the internet are friends with each other now and it's like you know it's almost like somebody stepping out of one tv screen and stepping into another tv screen mm-hmm that is the experience, I think, from a consumer level is when you and that's certainly what's happening with pockets is that there's all these YouTube people yeah. that start to intermingle, you know, and that YouTube is almost I feel like, you know, maybe it's harder to define what regional music is today. You know, what music coming out of St. Louis or Seattle or Miami is. But YouTube itself is a kind of territory that some mm-hmm. people are coming out of, if that makes any totally, sense. Totally, totally. I mean, it's it's becoming very fluid the way that people are connecting, which is which is awesome. And I, I do feel like a lot of the scene is concentrated in LA at the moment, but it's it's pretty incredible that um, there's like YouTube and there's Instagram, mm-hmm. and people are reachable and want to make stuff. Yeah. So uh, I emailed, you know, Bill Wirtz and. Mm-hmm. He came out to L.A. and and played drums in a video. And yeah, it's it's kind of uh, it's 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 very fun and and cool to know that, you know, everybody's out there. This is like uh, this kind of like shared platform that's accessible. And you were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when I met you. I picked you out, I shook you up and turned you around Turned you into someone new Five years later on, you got the world at your feet Success has been so easy for you But don't forget it's me who put you where you are now I can put you back down too Because Pockets is so, like, it has such a low barrier to entry There's zero preparation necessary You just show up and play Be yourself It's it, yeah, it's kind of been a good vehicle for, um, hey, come be in this room with other random people and we'll make something. We don't know what yet. We'll see what happens. I like what you say about how because you're going to be performing visually, it might affect your choices musically. You make simple choices, choices that are going to be easy and fun to play because you have to you know, portray that visually. You have to also. actually have fun. Yeah, you yeah. Actually, actually have to have fun. And so... I don't necessarily know that this matters anymore because so much music is consumed visually. But I wonder if there is a downside in making music that is meant to be seen, experienced visually, and not necessarily listened to without... I mean, you put the records out in vinyl, you put them out as records also, but it seems like the medium primarily is a visual medium. Is it different music? We think about it in terms of what we're optimizing for. You know what I mean? And what leads to growth for Pockets is most of the time um, having a video that gets shared. Yeah. And so most of the time for Pockets, 
we're optimizing for what's going to be the most engaging video. But there have been times where we've played with that slider and said, okay, let's just make the best song that yeah. we can. And so we've gone through periods where we've played with uh, bringing different producers. It was very clear when Jeremy Most showed up and suddenly there's all right. synth shit <laughs> flying around in the background. And That's they were right. not video songs anymore. It was like Scary Pockets and then this like remixed soundscape that also was happening at the same time. Exactly. That was sort of our version of playing with it is we'd still record the basic tracks to video. So everything you'd see there is, is what you're hearing. But then we just kind of gave free reign to the producers to add stuff on top and Jeremy's one of my heroes I just he's such an incredible producer and human being it was like Christmas every time you know we we do our thing with it and give it to someone else and we get it back getting a track back from Jeremy is just like such an experience yeah um all of a sudden it's amazing <laughs> and um and so yeah we we've I don't know um it's it's certainly more fun and satisfying musically not to have that limitation of okay you can only have what happened in the moment in the room and you can't put anything else on top of that because you really can make music better by adding stuff no <laughs> it I, turns out i think you know part of me feels like what's what is you know when i at the beginning of the conversation i said oh it's like some wrecking crew kind of thing it's like that's how uh -huh. records were made we know that right they were made in 3 hour sessions and then you'd go, you know you'd cut a couple of tunes and then it was all kind of union organized and everybody knew how long it took to make a record and you're returning to that in a lot of ways but so many of our favorite records were cut that way and then the strings were put on and the totally. and, and the vocals were you know the backing vocals were put on whatever it was like yeah. records were made the way you make them plus the way you know Yep. Uh, we think about it today. Which Wolf does all the time. Yes. I mean, Jack will add claps and background yeah. vocals and synths and stuff to what was done in the live take. So what we've kind of learned is um, it, as long as you can still see stuff that you're connecting with what you're hearing, mm -hmm. um, it's okay if there's sort of stuff added seems to be seems to be the thing. Um, every once in a while it freaks people out when there's no yeah. BGVs in the video and they're hearing BGVs, but, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, we, we kind of try to ride that, that line of like, what's going to be best for music and video. And also what's going to be the most fulfilling for us as sort of music makers. We want, we want to make every track sound as good as we can. Um, if a lot of, a lot of songs don't need it, you know what I mean? Yeah. If a song has the right arc and it sounds great then oftentimes, even if we could add more stuff, we won't because it works. But sometimes if if a song needs, if an arrangement needs a little help, yeah. we'll give it to a producer and, and have them flesh it out a little bit. What am I not talking to you about? I feel like Pockets is not your whole world. I mean, what are you doing? What is a week like for you? How is your time divided? It is a lot of Pockets these days now that we, we do Pockets once a month. We do stories uh, once a month, which is the acoustic version of Pockets. We do a Scary Goldings record a year. We got this DRH um, project that uh, we're about to play a show at, at the Troubadour in a couple weeks here. We did a, a, a Talkbox big band album with Swati. Um, so we have all of these, there's all these like uh, uh, ongoing 
projects, irons in the fire that sort of need tending to. Um, and you, on I, top of being the sort of ideator, producer guy, then you also got to show up a lot of time with the guitar and, and work out the music. Still got to play the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Deal with the instrument. Yeah. Um, and then there, I still do and love doing um, a lot of MD, like sideman work. I love um, music directing for other people uh, and, uh, and playing with other people. And I'm still making my own records and music. And uh, so it's it's sort of... Yeah, it's sort of all that together, and then Jack and I have this new talk show, uh, Professional Musicians React. Oh, yes, I have seen that, yes. Those come out once a week as well. So um, all of those, yeah, all of those are mostly what what fills up my days. Are you, do you have an assistant? Um, We have a team. Uh, Pockets is probably, yeah, I don't know, 10 to 20, sort of mostly part-time. Yeah. people working behind the scenes editors and and uh and we have like a head of audio and a head of video and operations and a live manager so i have a ton of help as far as running pockets goes i don't yeah i don't personally have a, an assistant are you healthy um define healthy answer it how you want i'm on day five of covid right now so oh shit oh man <laughs> i'm sorry to hear that no i i feel fine yeah um first time it's my first time, yeah. I, f- I really feel, as a New Yorker, responsible for that because I know that you've been to New York twice in the last uh, month at the it's time that we're talking now. And it hurt you. New York hurt you. Yes. the the fir- My first New York trip this month, I split a pastrami sandwich with Joey Dosick and we both got food poisoning, well. which we were supposed to do this then. And then two weeks later, I was back. And the day after my gig, four of us in the band got got the covid so um i yeah i don't think i'm gonna go back to new york for for a little while no, i'm gonna give it a give it a rest so you're you're on uh, day five of covid as we speak but in general i mean are you in general i'm i'm healthy i i do prioritize taking care of myself uh, i i like to eat well and exercise and um and yeah i i love working but um it it, it all feels yeah, I I don't I don't feel like I live in a way that's unsustainable or unhealthy. I'm always amazed when I, do you drink alcohol? Do you drink? I do drink. Yeah. Uh, the only reason I ask that is cuz sometimes when I see hyper prolific people uh-huh. and I see you as a very prolific person, I think maybe they take drugs or drink anything. Like maybe <laughs> maybe that's how they get the extra 2 hours a day or whatever it is, you know? I mean, I I drink s- socially i guess yeah. you know when i go out to a show have a beer yeah. like i couldn't be an alcoholic if i tried yeah i'm not like a good drinker yeah um and i've never done other other drugs i mean i, I tried to be a pothead in college yeah. too and that didn't that didn't work out well yeah so yeah i, I rarely i'll have a couple beers here and there but i'll rarely do anything else yeah i don't know if that is the secret it's just not there's there's plenty of prolific people that seem to have a partaken in, in many a substance as well so i'm not sure if that's a difference maker no i don't think that's it i'm not sure i'm not sure that that's it I'll, i'm gonna crack the code though at some point i'll figure out what yeah. what is the difference maybe it's just desire you know maybe it's just in the 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 personal motivation to to work to you know to make things yeah it might also be prioritizing i heard prince say he never tried to be the best songwriter he just wanted to uh be the most prolific songwriter 
he was, and I, and as and I will tell you, I'm a huge Prince fan. Me too. But that should I think his there's a lot of songs that he, his work I, speaks I, to that. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> and I think there's this. Uh, I watch a lot of basketball, mm-hmm. and I see a lot of. I feel like it's a similar thing, you know, like the the greatest uh, the greatest shooters in the world miss most of their shots. Mm-hmm. I mean, the greatest, you know, baseball players in the world, you know, miss what seven out of ten shots. The greatest songwriters in the world, I think, probably miss eleven out of every twelve songs yeah. that they try to write. So I think getting very comfortable with. Uh, with failure is is kind of a key to to productivity. Mm-hmm. You were recently featured in a Scary Pockets video uh, to promote the new vinyl release, and in the video, you're standing under a chuppah, uh, about to get married to a lovely young lady, and the rabbi is James Gadsen, the legendary Gadsen. legendary yeah. drummer. And uh, and un- unfortunately, it's ill fated in the end. Right, you're left standing alone at the altar. But you know, it did make me question. You know, uh, are you are you looking for love? Is this something that's still unfulfilled in your life? In the wrong places, apparently. I am. Yes, I. I uh, I'm open. I'm open to being loved uh, and to loving. Is there room in such a full professional and creative life? Seriously, for totally for a relationship? I mean, can you make it to- work? You could fit it in totally. Yeah, yeah. I I almost had I had one on the line mm-hmm. and it didn't work out, but um but yeah, I feel like up until that last sort of relationship, I I kind of wondered if if that was in the cards for me in terms of if if I could and would be a long-term relationship guy. And uh and I loved I loved it. I loved being in it. Um it didn't, you know, ultimately was not the right uh, mm-hmm. thing apparently. But yeah, I, I definitely came away from it. I'm 35, thinking, okay, I that's good. I liked. I can do that, and I like it. And I just, you know, I keep trying. Well, it's hard to wake up. It can't take a while, but it can't make you smile if you wait long enough. It's tough to admit. This is it for good Though you know you should If you were strong enough Ryan Lerman, thank you for trying with me today in this conversation. It's really such a treat to talk to you, man. You too, man. Thanks for having me. There he was, my friends, the great Ryan Lerman. What a mensch. The Third Story is a production of WBGO Studios. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Leo Sidrin. I'll be back in your headspace before you know it with another deep dive. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.